Hello, my name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan, and welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with interesting people on application of behavioral science to life and work. Yes, geeky stuff, but oh so fun. In this episode, we talk with Chad Emerson, founder and president of 421 Consulting. Chad is applying behavioral science principles in his work, helping people with addiction become sober and make a better life for themselves. Yeah, it's really impressive work. And to think about the difference that he's making in people's lives, well, it, uh, it leaves me a bit inspired. Yeah, it does myself as well. And I've known Chad for 20 years, and it was really exciting for me uh, to have him on the show and to relate some of his insights and stories from what he has learned from his years in business and also with his journey through alcoholism. So, Kurt, our interview ranged uh, across the board. You know, there were some key insights that his talk brought out that I think are important um, and, and one of those is that our need to be change ready. You know, to be successful in change, we need to do the prep work first. Yeah, that came out really early in the conversation when we talked about the different stages of change that Chad's identified. Uh, I think those were first, being asleep and the need to wake up from that, being, uh, from that sleep. Second, exploring the options and making a decision. Third, planning for the change and making a commitment to it. And finally, doing the hard work that's needed. I also liked his story of how a simple smile made him realize how much we can control our own emotions and feelings. Yeah, that was great. Um, another interesting take was when we started talking about the wobble in the steering wheel, <laughs> you know, and how, how we need to pay attention to those wobbles in our lives. Yeah, and how I don't really pay that much attention <laughs> to those wobbles in my car or probably in my life. But uh, listen up, and that's what we're going to be hearing about. Uh, what might be my favorite, uh, though, in the conversation was that we had after we formally entered, ended the interview. So uh, we just let the tape keep running. And, uh, and this, this point that Chad brought out was the fact that how we're all in this together um, and that we are they and they are we. It was a little Beatles-esque for me, but I thought it worked really well. And uh, we've added those outtakes uh, at, at the end of the podcast for your listening enjoyment. Yes, I thought those that it was by far part of my favorite uh, parts of the conversation as well. We got to talk about that as well as the change beast and some other fun things there. But don't forget... We talked about drop dead gorgeous donuts. Drop dead gorgeous donuts. And, yes, mm. and uh, listen up, folks. It's really exciting, and uh, we're excited to share this with you. And so, without further ado, our interview with Chad Emerson. Chad, we are excited to have you here today. We have a number of questions and talking to you about your work and how you apply behavioral science uh, in that and various different pieces around change and a number of things. But uh, I think just to begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what got you interested in this realm? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate being here, uh, Kurt and Tim. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak on on this topic, uh, kind of, uh, kind of like you guys, I would presume it's kind of in your DNA, right? Uh, you know, it's kind of what you, <laughs> Tim, you're chuckling, yeah. so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But um, it was interesting. I was thinking about this, um, but when I was a kid, maybe five or six years old, uh, I just remember this vividly. I was standing outside. It was a summer day in front of my garage, and I was mad or upset about something, and I just remember the tears streaming down my face. And I thought to myself, and I don't know where this thought came from, is what if I smiled? How would I feel? And I smiled, and 
I'll be danged if I didn't feel better. And that's a <laughs> and I didn't want to feel better. That's the problem. Wow. But I felt better. Wow. And it's like I so I th- that's why I say it's in my DNA. I think I knew from that point in my life that there are ways that you can change things about yourself. And that really has driven my my desire to explore this further. Now, as I progressed through my career, you know, I got into the leadership development work. Right. And, and, and that's kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, but more recently, I've had a personal experience that's really kind of driven my desire and my need for this. Um, and I will, I will share this openly with you. I'm alcoholic, and I was in recovery uh, in 2015. I put myself through recovery. And that was a transformational experience for me. Okay. Uh, and it really kind of solidified my desire to... Uh, understand how do people go through these changes and, and make these transformations. And, and, and this is a, a very uh, difficult situ- situation to come through. Right. Um, you know, and, and people are trying to make all kinds of changes that are a lot less dire than, uh, you know, the, the, the implications that an addiction has. Uh, the the potential it. life and death components yeah. of, of that. And I know from that um, experience, and, and I've known you for 20 plus years now in in this world but um as a result of that you formed a company 421 right tell us a little bit about so help us understand what that transformation was in that recovery process and then how that has led to 421 and what you're trying to do with that right so really tried to understand okay is there a way that i can take what i've learned what i've been able to do with my life and bring that out into the world. Okay. And as I started to explore that, I realized that, you know, I, I gained a lot of uh, knowledge and experience and skills going through recovery, but I also could tie that back to that leadership development work and that model that I started looking at um, back back in the mid '90s, actually. Right. And so I started exploring that and really trying to understand, is there something there? Could I? Is there something that I could do that I could create that I could bring out into the world? And so through um, some research you know, since 2015, I've been able to identify uh, some, some good, solid uh, models uh, and uh, things to hang on those models that I can bring out uh, based on my experience. Well, tell us about them. That sounds, uh, that sounds like a great way to... Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Prochaska, a guy, I don't know his background, I don't recall his background, but he... Uh, uh, really identified and documented the stages of change. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the crux of what I'm working with people on, uh, working with people on. And uh, it really, what, what surprised me was when I found that book that he wrote on this, uh, how much it looked like the model I had developed uh, when I was working in the leadership development field. Unbeknownst, right? Unbeknownst, so completely is, yeah. un- unknown. And so I think the lesson that I took from that is that that these stages of change are universal, you know, kind of like the stages of grief. Um, you know, everybody goes through that. Well, everybody goes through these stages of change. So I've, I've taken that, those stages of change, and created a process and, and really kind of changed the labels a little bit, but really kind of tried to drill down on what goes on in each of those stages and how do people move through them. So James Prochaska wrote a book called Change for Good, and I think that's the book that, that is, you yes. are referring to. And so we'll put those in the in the notes and a link to that in case you guys are interested, uh, listeners out there. But tell us about those those steps that... So take... Don't use his, use yours. What, what are your... 
phases? Do you do you remember what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, it, it starts out where there's there's um, kind of a lack of awareness. You're just not aware that you need to make any kind of a change, and I call that stage kind of a, an asleep stage uh, or an unaware stage. And in order to move from that stage to the next one, you really have to awaken yourself. So there has to be some kind of a trigger that uh, makes you aware that a change is needed, whether it comes from outside of you, somebody saying, hey, Chad, you know, maybe you need to go and get some help. Or maybe it's, Kurt, you saying, hey, you know, I need to start exercising some more. I'm feeling a little sluggish kind of a thing. So there's that awakening that, that comes about. And then you move into the next stage, and uh, Prochaska calls it contemplation, contemplation, excuse me. And uh, I, the, I've labeled that as explore, just kind of taking it to the you know, street terms. And we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later, what I yep. mean by that. But um, when, when you, as you start to explore what it is that's going on inside you, what you're feeling, what your options might be, and, and trying to think about, is this something that I really want to work on or not? And maybe you try on a few behaviors and, and see how they feel on you kind of a thing. Uh, and then you make a decision. Uh, say, yeah, I do want to make this change. And you move into the next stage, and that's the planning or the preparation stage, where you actually create your action plan. Unfortunately, this is where most people start when okay. they want to make a change. They don't do a lot of the prep work. And that's one of the things that I do a lot of work with people uh, today in, in the work that I do on doing the prep work on that. But, but you create the plan. So uh, you set specific goals. You set a time frame. Uh, you think about how are you going to overcome barriers and things like that. And so you've got this great plan there, but you know you haven't taken any action yet. The next action item in that is to commit to that. Give yourself this commitment and say, I am going to do this. And maybe even put a deadline on it kind of okay. thing. Mm-hmm. Then the next uh, stage is um, action, or you, you actually start to adopt this behavior. But that's not the end of the effort here because you can adopt that behavior, uh, but so often, and the term relapse applies in recovery as it does in just about any other behavioral change, you you revert back to your old behaviors. And so you have that initial action, but then you have to work to maintain that. And there's two four-letter words that I like to use with people that they don't like to hear, and that's hard work. And this really does involve hard work. And I'm sorry, folks out there, but that's the truth of the matter. Um, so that was, in a nutshell, that's kind of the, the, the process that I work with people on. So you talked about that people jump in in, a, in one of the later stages and don't put the, the upfront work in. Why is that? So what? What, what, what makes the, you know, if, Hey, if I'm, I have a, I put my plan together and I commit to doing it. Why do I need to work on that upfront process piece of that? Yeah, exactly. So Kurt, Tim, I'll ask you both this. How many new year's resolutions or self promises have you made that you've actually kept in terms of uh, behavioral change? <laughs> I I can put it on maybe a hand. One hand. Yeah, you know, one, hand. One, one hand. And and here's why. Yes. It's here's why because it pops into your head. It's a great idea and you start to take action right away. What you haven't done is you haven't thought through how am I going to handle these obstacles that come up? How am I going to make time? Have I made time to do this? Right. You know, how am I going to react when I'm not feeling motivated? So that's all the prep work before you actually start doing this work that you need to do. You need to get 
change ready is what the, the term is. And then we use that in the business world a lot. Uh, but becoming ready for change. And that's one of the things that most people don't work on prior to this. And that's where I try to take people back uh, farther upstream in the process and get them, help them to get change ready and then look at their plan. So is the work of 421, uh, you talk about this prep work being so important, is it primarily one-on-one, is it primarily individual development or do you see it applying to larger groups? Yeah, and I'm just building out the business right now. The work that I'm currently doing is in the recovery field and it's with alcoholics and addicts. And so a lot of that work right now is individual based. I do see uh, down the road, I'd love to do workshops around this and and just uh, really give people the whole uh, gamut of this process and all of the tools that are involved with it. But right now, it's really a a coaching kind of a role. And this is what I talk to other people outside of that realm as well, Um, just kind of a a one-to-one relationship. Yeah. So we've had conversations um, in the past in regards to, you know, getting people like, like what it is when people are in that asleep phase, right? Mm-hmm. Not even realizing that there is an issue. And in your experience, what are, what are some of those things? Maybe, maybe your own personal um, experience on this. What, what knocks people out of or wakes people up? There, it really depends on, on where they're at, what they're at. I mean, it, it can be something, and usually it's something very emotional for okay. them. Um, you know, for me specifically, it was seeing the impact that my disease had on the people around me and how my life was kind of falling apart around me. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 2012, mm-hmm. uh, but it's an apocalyptic kind of a movie. And with the CG, the graphic stuff that they've got going you know, they're flying in an airplane and all of the ground beneath them is just crumbling away, falling away. Well, that's what my life was like. And that, that awakening, that emotional impact of, of finally coming to that realization that that's what my life looked like was what triggered me to wake up, you know, right. and, and, and do something about it. And so for a lot of other people, um, you know, it could be somebody saying something. It could be uh, you go to a doctor and the doctor says, hey, you know what, you better drop some weight or you're going to drop dead kind right. of a thing. So it's some, it can be something as simple as that. Um, so, you but, know, that inspiration can come from... But some emotional anywhere. triggers. A lot of emotional triggers. I mean, and, and, and for change to really stick, that's probably the strongest factor that if you can get an emotional trigger into something like that, that that's uh, going to really drive that. You, you mentioned that Prochaska was... a big influence on you. Uh, what other influences have, have you had? What, yeah. what other research uh, got you going beyond the smile? Yeah, so it's. <laughs> I don't know that there's any research. I think it's more encounters and experiences that okay. I've had. Then, and it goes back to that emotional thing uh, for me, uh, that I see somebody in a situation where they struggle uh, or they're hurting. Um, there was one kid that I worked with recently um, he, he was just very engaged, uh, and we were talking about the steps of AA Alcoholics Anonymous. He was very engaged and, then, and understood it and stuff. And then he asked this question, so, okay, how do I do it? And there was uh, there several other people in the group, and so one person spoke up and said, well, here, you just do this step, this step. And he goes, no, 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 I get that, I get that. 
I know what to do. I know what you're telling me to do. What I don't know is how do I get myself to do it? Mm. Ah, and so yeah. those kinds of experiences make me think and make me want to go out and, and explore this topic and research this topic and understand it more. So it's really experiences like that that are driving what uh, the work that I'm doing. Well, it's interesting how you talk about the emotional component. We just had a conversation uh, with Anurag, um, who, for, who is uh, one of the founding partners of Final Mile, a big behavioral consultancy. Uh, and, and his component on this is saying, you know, even from, a, from the business world perspective, organizationally, the big thing that we're not getting is understanding the emotional power, the, the power that emotion has in driving behavioral change. And it's one of the things, um, you know, even in, in the research that, that I've done in looking at how people change, it's the first step that I talk about in, in driving change, right, is you have to have that emotional trigger, that emotional component in order to get that. And what I think is hard about that for people is it's hard to manufacture emotion. There isn't an easy, it's not, so to, to your point of with this kid, so how do I do this? Yes, I understand the steps, I understand the process, but I feel, you know, I think what reading in the between the lines there is, but what's that emotional component that is driving me? And how do you manufacture that? Are there things that you've experienced or seen that can help in that process? Yeah, Does that it, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that as 421 I talk to people about is the human condition. Right. And, you know, the human condition being roughly just those things that make us uniquely human, whatever that may be, our emotions and, and our, our fallibilities and our successes and struggles like that. And I take that the next step and we talk about living life with the human condition and that's the human experience. And so at 421, I talk a lot about what this human experience is. And so trying to change the human experience, trying to make it better, trying to make people's lives better, things like that. I take them to a place, I try to take them to a place, doesn't always work, deep in their core, kind of where their values and their morals and their character lie and figure out really what they want. And so um, working with, um, you know, like this kid, um, you know, taking him to a place of what, what kind of person do you really want to be? And starting to get them to think about what's deep inside them. And that starts to invoke some emotions and, and really gets them thinking uh, outside of the everyday materialistic world and kind of gets them into their hearts, if you will. Yeah. Uh, you, you've talked about the street terms. You, 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 yeah. you brought that up earlier. Yeah. Um, and and you, you've been trying to sort of translate the academic speak to be more street term speak. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think for me that boils down to just one word and that's accessibility. So what I try to do is take all of that information, I try to do the studying for people and try to really take that and boil it down and so Prochaska, for example, uses contemplation as a step, or pre-contemplation, contemplation, and he's kind of what I would call, quote-unquote, clinical terms for these things. So I try to relabel those and put those in things like, let's explore what you want to do, what you want to be, what you right. want to become, rather than contemplate. 
kind of thing, and, and, and take it to that kind of language. But also couch this in, or understand that the work that I'm doing is with people and with individuals too, you know, and just everyday people is kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take this stuff to everyday people and, and make it palatable, understandable, digestible, so that they can take it and internalize it. Well, and I think we call ourselves geeks, right? It's, yes. it's part of... Well, I'm in that of, club too. Though. I know, I and, it, and it's part I of that, that DNA. And so so for us, sometimes I think we get so enamored in being able to, hey, this cool research article and, and all this this book and all of these things, and we, we need to take a step back. I mean, this happens in... in business world in individuals uh, across the across the board is that they don't get as jazzed about this stuff as we do and yet the implications and the applications of this are are really impactful for people Mm -hmm. and so i think that's a really great insight chad to think about this from that perspective of saying how many times are, are we ourselves, because we are geeks on this, and I'm assuming that many of the people listening on the podcast are probably geeks on this too, um, but how do we translate our excitement, our geeky, you know, oh, loss aversion and, you know, choice architecture and all of these really, they're not even necessarily technical terms, but for many people what the hell does that mean, right? And how do you then translate that into that everyday life? Right. And I think, you know, for a lot of the applications that I've heard relative to behavioral groove, it's it's around uh, things like performance improvement within organizations, or it's about advertising and marketing and moving the needle on sales and things like that, or even in social realms where you're trying to modify social behaviors, that sort of thing. You know, the technical stuff actually works more so in those realms uh, because you're talking to like-minded people within organizations who have at least some understanding. I know that when I did market research, uh, I'm a market research geek, um, and I'd also have marketing people who wanted this information uh, from us, from our departments, but they also understood a lot of the technical jargon and stuff like that. So it was easy to, to talk back and forth with them. The people that I'm working with, the people on the streets, you know, just everyday people, aren't in that, like I talked about before. They're just not in that. And so, you know, that translation does have to occur. I liken it to if if I'm developing a software program or I'm working for somebody who wants a software development program, uh, they're the user, we've got a technical guy, I'm the guy in between. There's tech talk and then there's, you know, normal talk. And a lot of times those don't mesh. And so being able to translate that talk is an important thing to do. Yeah. I want to go back to the smile. When did that happen? And and uh, if if you can just recreate that experience of all this anguish in inside of you, yeah. What was the catalyst? What was the spark that said? You know, and, and how old were you? I'm, I'm just I'm yeah. Just I, okay, so I'm going to channel my inner child here <laughs> and see if I can go back in time. I must have been about, I, I know the place that I lived at, I was about five or six oh at the time that this happened. I just remember the garage door, it was a Rambler house, uh, it was summertime, uh, green grass, I remember that. Uh, the sun was shining, so it was probably, you know, afternoon sometime, and I just remember something happened, and I was standing there in front of the garage, and tears were just streaming down my face, and just... 
angry and upset. And all of a sudden, and I don't know where it came from, Tim, is this thought, smile. And I smiled and I felt instantly better inside. And you can try it too. Next time you get really honked off at something, just smile and see see what happens. So where, where did that go? From uh, so from there was it was was it a tool that you would come back to? Was it was it a, a little, you know? It was trigger? always yeah. It was always something that I held on to. What it did was it it made me realize that I can control what goes on inside of me, mm. how I feel how I think. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I did anything with it, you know, in my uh, formative years uh, or even in my teen years necessarily. But I've always been interested in that kind of topic. You know, how can I change who I am, what I'm feeling, what I'm doing? Well, and that goes to some of uh, Carol Dweck's Dweck's, uh, work on growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And it's really interesting... um, uh, on that, because the, 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 that research really is looking at, um, so as a child, are you uh, brought up with a mindset that says, hey, you know, if you're having a diff- difficult time, does that mean that you're no good at it and so therefore you should quit? Or does that mean, does that struggle then mean, hey, this is something that if I work hard at, I'm going to get good at? And, you know, she does a lot of really interesting work and I try to apply it with my kids of just saying, when they come home with a good grade, you go, you don't say, oh, great, you're so smart. You, you go and you say, oh, great job. You worked really hard at that. And that difference makes a significant impact on how they just actually translate themselves. And so what you're just talking about with the smile, I think, Chad, is really interesting because somehow you have that component that I can control this. It's not easy, right? And I loved your first part is like, I didn't want to be happy, but Mm -hmm. when I I smiled, it made me happy. And sometimes you don't want to, right? You want to wallow in that sorrow sometimes mm-hmm. but i think those are really interesting pieces so so thank you for that yeah yeah um if you had to think about one key component that you had to like if everybody who's listening here um in in how they can apply some of this into their own lives um what would that one key piece of information, if you said, hey, you know, people out there, you're trying to change, you're going through, you're struggling, what, what would that one, if there's one key thing, it doesn't, maybe it's two. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I kind of talked about this uh, a little bit before, is that um, as you go, move towards making a change, thinking about making a change, Really work the fundamentals. Uh, be ready for change. And, you know, it's kind of like, a, and I hate using sports analogies. I'm not a sports guy necessarily, but, you know, they kind of fit. Uh, when a team gets off kilter um, and they're not playing well, what do they do? They go back to the fundamentals. And so the fundamentals of change really, in my mind, have to do with self-awareness, uh, self-control or self-regulation, um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, some, some real basic things like that, that, um, and self-honesty is another big one, too. Um, but if you go back to those fundamentals, work on those fundamentals, and help yourself become change-ready, then you're going to be much more likely to succeed as you progress through 
um, the the work, the plan that you have. You think about, you guys have done project management before, and you understand all of the work that goes into a project plan, Mm -hmm. right? So you become ready to do the project before you actually try to do the project. Same principle here. Okay. So really focus on that. Given our, our, our biases and blind spots, is that something that do you, that you think we can do alone? Or that some, most... some people can. Um, some people can, but a lot of times it requires outside assistance. Okay. You know, so, um, Which there's is a, where 421 comes in. Exactly, yeah. And we can work with individuals to, to help them explore that and understand that better. So, you know, for me personally, as an alcoholic, I had a lot of blind spots, as you can imagine. And I had a lot of difficulties working the fundamentals of of self-awareness, understanding what was going on with myself, being honest with myself, what I was really doing, why I was doing it, that kind of thing. And obviously self-control. So I started working on those and then progressed on through the stages. So how do you... So how would somebody... All right, outside of bringing in somebody else, some from the outside, but just that initial step of, again, you, you, we have these biases and these blind spots on our own. How do you go about self getting greater self-awareness or more self-honesty? What Are, are there tips that you can think of? Yeah, and I think... Um... And it goes back to this, you know, do you want to be a student or not? And mm. there's a lot of great books out there. There's a lot of great resources. Um, and, and books aside, there's a lot of resources on the web that can get you started at least. Okay. You know, um, in Wikipedia, for example, you don't want to trust everything that's on there. But right. it's sometimes an okay place to start to start to explore. So what I would say is for people, um, well, step back. Ever drive your car and you feel a wobble in your wheel, wheel? Yep. You know, your steer, steering wheel? You know something's wrong. And do you just let it go or do you pay attention to it? Do you do something about it, try to figure out what's going on? Okay. I think I know the answer. <laughs> you, you let it go, don't you? I Kurt? let it go. I know. I know. You know me. It's like, ah, it'll, it'll self-correct. Roll off the road right there. <laughs> But people have that sense within themselves. I honestly believe this, that there is a dissonance or a wobble inside of them. And if they start to pay attention to that and try to understand what's going on mm-hmm. with that and then start to explore out there, um, this is one way that people can pull themselves up and out. It takes a lot of work, but you know that, that's a key thing is pay attention to the dissonance within you. Which is where that, that preparation, be prepared for change, preparing yeah, yourself. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so are some of those things I know in the work that, actually in some of the work that we've talked about doing together in various different things, we talk about some of those steps. And, and are there certain things like if-then statements, right? Do you, is that part of that, that preparatory work? Uh, are, are there specific... Uh, techniques that you can that that you can talk about that help that in other words if this situation happens then I will respond X is that part of that preparatory work or what yeah is it? it is and it's really dependent on the kind of change that you want to make okay. you know so if you're you're working on a diet and you say if I'm presented with a beautiful donut what will I do right you know well, is there anything away. other than a beautiful donut I'm just you know, yeah, point kind of a, well taken, kind of, Tim. Yeah, kind of a, you know. yeah. They're, no, they're all beautiful. <laughs> I think all donuts are yes. beautiful. Yes. Some, however, some donuts are more beautiful than oh, others. Yeah. All right, there are there are some donuts that you can say, "Oh, that's a cute donut. That's a nice looking donut." But, 
But then there's some other donuts where it is, oh my gosh, (laughs) drop-dead gorgeous donut. Oh my gosh, did we just go down that that path? Down, down, I was going to say the rabbit hole, but it was the donut hole. Oh, I know. Sorry about that. No, but I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we we do have to prepare for the barriers that are ahead of us, and we have to be able to try to anticipate those. And we're going to know some of those barriers. We're not going to know all of them. And so we have to have contingencies for things we don't know as well. So I think that's a really interesting part. So, well, I'd like to talk music if we could sure absolutely <laughs> so you know that the behavioral grooves is uh, is not just about uh behavior but it's also about grooving it's yes about, sir uh, music and yeah. so if there was a theme song that that would, was going to be played at uh, you receiving some fabulous award walking on stage what would your theme song be chad well, to be honest, I don't think that song is written yet. Oh, okay. And here's why, though. Um, you know, I've been through a life transformation here in the past couple of years, and I'm still trying to define who I am and what I'm going to become. Right. And so how do you ascribe a theme song to something, a story that's not been written yet? Wow. It's not Mother Teresa? Come on. No. <laughs> no. That one, I'm not worthy of that song. <laughs> oh, that's an inside joke. Uh, backstory, Chad and I used to sit around and jam late at night sometimes. And Chad jammed and I just was a bad singer. Um, anyway. Uh, and it was all beautiful music. All just, beautiful just like music. the donuts. <laughs> just like donuts. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Um, Chad, thank you. This has been uh, really informative and I think uh, really inspirational on, on some aspects too. So, yes. so thank you well, for I, that. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk with you guys as well. Thank you. Any, any last words that you would have for anybody listening to the podcast? Anything you want to leave them with? Uh, at that point. Yeah, I put on my uh, 421 hat, the organization that I started. Uh, I would say just, uh, folks, go out there, do good for yourselves, do good for other people. All right. Chad, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Some of my favorite moments in this conversation happened when we thought we were done. And here are some outtakes where we talk about how we're all in this together, the change beast, which is a really interesting part of the conversation, and how much wobble is really needed to get Kurt to change. You know, and and, and 421 isn't just about behavioral change. It's it's really kind of trying to get people to give a shit about other people and compassion. You know, going going through what I've gone through, um, you know, I look at these people, look at people very differently. I say these people, I mean like alcoholics and addicts, but I translate that to everybody as well. And I just, uh, the compassion that I have for people right now is, is really what's driving me. Well, and I think so. it's interesting. You talk about that different perspective of looking at people and we do so automatically just put labels on people yeah. and ascribe motives. You had, and you had a question on there that you didn't ask me about. Um, what would I... It, well, you kind of asked it, but it, it was worded slightly differently. Um, but any advice that I'd give people for what using... What would you say to podcast listeners? Yeah, yeah read that. If you could read that whole thing. What would you say to a podcast listener who wants to know how to apply behavioral science to their life or work? What hints would you offer them? Yeah. And what I was going to talk about relative to that was that 
um, you know, in in situations where applied behavioral science works towards uh, sales or performance improvement or social changes or, or anything like that, is that just remember that we are they and they are us. Ah. And so many times in market research, I would look at a data point or I'd look at uh, a respondent set of responses um, you know, at, at uh, the recovery centers, I see an ID number. What I have to do is I have to throw that out, and I have to go and I have to look and look this guy in the eye and talk to him, get to know him, kind of a thing. Yeah. And remember that what we're doing out there from a behavioral science perspective to these people out there, we're actually doing it ourselves too. Not not literally too you know directly pointed at us, but we're all in this together basically. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd be damned if I didn't just lose my thought. At any rate, at any rate, where you were going though? um, We are they, and they are us. Yeah, we as that general, you know, human, you know, species that we are all, you know, there is a component that, you know, we are all human, and we all have emotions, we all have feelings, we all have beliefs. We the might human condition. Disag- we might disagree mm-hmm. on that, but that doesn't mean that we're any less of a human, um, for the most part, right? I, I think you can maybe take out, you know, psychopaths and serial killers in there, but you yeah, know, beyond an that, extreme factioner. But beyond that, there's that component of saying, how how do we operate within that human condition and make sure that we're not just in that asleep stage in thinking of how what we do impacts others and and not making sure that we don't actually think about those components. One of the other things that I uh, talk to people about is is getting lost in the status quo. And Adam Grant wrote the book Original, mm-hmm. Originals, whatever that was. Uh, really good book. One of the things that he talks about is that people accept the default of their life. Yeah. Oh, oh and, absolutely. Yeah. And so trying to yank people up and out of, of that fog of the default, and that's asleep. That's being asleep. Right. You know? And, and being asleep can be as much as, I wish I could be like that, but I don't have any hope that I could, or I don't see the possibility of me ever doing or being or, or becoming anything like that. Yeah. Hope's an interesting thing. Yeah. Because it can, it, can, it can wax and wane. Yeah. Well, and I think there's an interesting piece of that, too. So I've, I, I shared with you like the, my component around the change beast, right? And kind of that analogy of, of, you know, we are stuck in that status quo up until that part where you talked about that wiggle on the wheel. Um, I kind of talk about it that there's this gnawing or this mm-hmm. noise in our head. Yes. Yeah. Um, and And... Until that noise gets large enough to wake up this change beast in our head, we tend to just go on daily life as as it is. And even when that that noise gets large enough or strong enough that we that the change beast stirs, you know, we have this default mechanism that comes back and says we try to do everything to keep that 
that that change beast down. We either that or we build walls up around that change beast and try to ignore contain it, it, contain yeah. different yeah. things. But yeah. you know, if it if it's strong enough, if that noise is loud enough, if that wiggle is strong enough, you know, yeah, if it's a little wiggle, I'm not going to take that car in. If I'm going down the road and I'm like having a hard time actually steering, I'm going to take it in. You know, pretty soon to even, that. Even to, you. Even me. <laughs> I know. Even me. I will take it in. Um, but I think that there's that, that interesting part of what does it take to shock us out mm-hmm. of that status quo? Mm-hmm. What, that, what, the, what is the catalyst? What is, what what is, is that catalyst? What's the trigger? What's, what, what is that one? And it, and it can be that one little thing. Yeah, and I, 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 it, it's interesting because I talk about that too. It's, it's, sometimes it's, a, sometimes it's a, an event, right? It is Boom, it smacks us in the face and we are just uh, confronted with this world that, wow, I need to really address that and look at myself. Yeah. Other times it's like this slow, like those old cartoons where you have that bomb there, but you have the really long fuse and you, <laughs> you light it and you watch it go and it's just going and you know it's going to go, but you're not sure and does it get stomped out before it gets there. Um, you know, and, and it takes over time, years and years and, you know, if, if not decades sometimes for, for that to happen. Um, and so I think it's really hard. That gets back to what we talked about is it's that because it's an emotional trigger. It's not a rational trigger. Right. And so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it, it's not going to be about more data. Right. It, you you yeah. can get all the data in the world. It has to have some emotional you know, kind of hitting you in the gut. So here's the beauty of the work that I'm doing right now, working with the, the, in the recovery field, is that everything that we're talking about right now is all happening in a very compressed, intense environment. Yes. And so well, I do see this. I got guys coming in, say, I'm not an addict. I you know, why are you here then? Because, you know, my parents sent me here, whatever the case may be. You know, and, and how do you, and, and to your point, Tim, you can throw all the statistics, you can throw all the facts and figures and numbers and all that rational shit at them, and it just, and what gets through to them is some kind of, of emotional trigger or some kind of um, link to something that is really meaningful to them, you know, something that triggers something in their value system, kind of like I was talking about before. And so you try to take them to this place you know, that's relevant to them. That's absolutely relevant to them. Yeah. And so you, you take them down to this, this place and then you start listening to them. And then once you hear that little snippet of a change language in there, you latch onto that and you keep working that and working that and try to pull them out wow. and bring them out. Yeah. That's, wow. that's really it ain't interesting. Easy. It ain't yeah. Easy. Good. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groove session and have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our head. So, Tim, biggest insight you took away from our talk with Chad? 
I, I really, really liked his his comment about we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. This uh, And I, I, I kind of noted at the beginning, this is a Beatles-esque kind of a thing that you are me and I am you and we are they and they are us. And, and I, I mean, by the way... <laughs> I want to hold your hand. Exactly. I shouldn't sing. I should. Right. We, that's a new rule. But this uh, was, will not sing. This is, is the great thing is that we need to think about the, implica- the implications of applying behavioral sciences... Uh, not just to them, but how it's going to impact us as well. And it goes back to the behavioral grooves session we had, I think, with James Heyman and the actual session when we talked about uh, the application of some of these principles and how those applications uh, need to be thought of from the perspective of saying, hey, can this actually do harm and can it impact others or how... How do people even understand uh, what happens when those behavioral insights are being applied to you, maybe in ways that you're not even aware of? Right. This is uh, it, our biases. Our biases. Are, are una- we're unaware of our biases. So it's, it's very likely that the interventions on those biases are going to be equally as uh, unnoticeable to us. And so we need to understand that everybody out there is somehow connected with us. And so if we're applying those behavioral principles, let's use them in a way that we would like them applied to our own selves. Yeah, I think that that's part of the message. Uh, and I, I'm thinking about a conversation we had with uh, with a programmer, a, a software engineer out in, um, in Silicon Valley when we were out in San Francisco a couple okay. of weeks ago. And she was talking about uh, just delighting in her own creativity, the ability to to, to uh, bring all this big data <laughs> together, right? And and I started thinking, uh, and, and she, so uh, her company is, is doing things that in, in effect manipulate our, our choice. And, uh, and influence what we're going to do uh, in a completely unknowing way, in a completely subconscious way. And I started to think about the ethical implications of doing that in direct comparison to, say, Richard Thaler's uh, Save More Tomorrow, where, where they changed the default on the 401k form. But, but still, you have the opportunity to opt out. You, you will always have it in Thaler. There's always that choice, right, in in those situations, and it is just the determination of which becomes the default and which isn't. So you always have that choice in the situation that you're talking about with the uh, individual from uh, out in San Francisco. There wasn't an awareness, right? It was it was being able to take very specific um, both weather and other data and apply it to individuals in the messaging that they're getting either via text or on their Facebook page or other kind of advertisement. And so knowing that, hey, you start buying this this beer at 92 degrees, um, whereas I might start buying this, this beer at 88 degrees when the weather gets that hot, and then sending messages out right in, in, uh, in advance of that, as well as some other factors that go into that which on the surface may not seem to be you know, ethically wrong. You're just helping that person in, in the situation where they're at. Yet there's a part of it that we, by knowing that much information about us, you're able to trigger uh, decisions that may not have been triggered before. Right. And in that situation, I don't see an obvious opt-out. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see an, uh, an easy way of saying, no, I'm going to resist that because... Um, because the messaging is being served up on a subliminal level. Yeah, 
And so we have to remember that we are they and they are we. <laughs> exactly. There you go. That Beatles song, Remember the Beatles. So, Kurt, what, what about you? What was your big takeaway from Chad's discussion? I, I think the insight that we can apply. Um, I think there's a lot. I think the, 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 the stages of change, I think, are really interesting from that perspective of understanding and trying to be aware of where we are in those changes um, or in those stages, excuse me. Uh, and then applying the, the right tools to the stage that you're in. So if you're in that asleep, um, which is probably one of the stages that you probably can't identify yourself, right? right. Um, but are there those little wobbles or those little gnaws that you're having um, that are trying to wake you up? And so paying attention to those wobbles, paying attention to those little gnawing things in the back of your head. Hey, Maybe, you know, this, these pants are tight and maybe it's not because I shrunk them in the, in the wash, right? Maybe I need to be aware of that. And so uh, understanding what those wobbles are and paying that and just looking and using those tools. So uh, you talked about noise, you know, you, you mm-hmm. brought up this idea of there gets to be a certain amount of noise. Um, you know, I think about uh, addictions, mm-hmm. uh, whether uh, a, a couple come to mind, uh, you know, uh, alcohol, eating addictions. But then I also think about the, uh, the, the, the studies done at Rice University on people who had heart attacks go through the surgery to get their bodies repaired. And then they come out of surgery and basically they're all well. Mm-hmm. And uh, some 92% of them don't adhere to the dietary and um, exercise regimens that are prescribed because there's no noise, right? There's no impetus to, to act on that. They're no longer feeling the pain uh, that they had and they think that they're back into uh, uh, their life is, is good, yet they know, you know, the doctors have told them, hey, if you don't continue this change, they're, you know, this is going to happen again, but they're just not hearing that noise. Is that what you're... That's what I'm saying. Is that, is that there's no noise in their system. There's nothing that is, that is uh, slowing them down. There's no wobble in the wheel anymore because they're, they're good as gold after the surgery. It's, it's an interesting thing because... So then it, do we manufacture a wobble? Do right. we manufacture right. a noise? Because in those instances, right, we don't have that feedback loop, Yeah, you know? We don't have the, the, the chest pain or the, the lack of breath or whatever it is that would then lead us to say, hey, I might need to keep this change up. So how do we manufacture that? That's an interesting point. It, which could be a nudge. Yes, right? it could be a it, nudge. It, it, could be, it could be a nudge uh, to allow people to uh, get some exposure to it. And it could be going into maybe it's even removing the factor of noise altogether and saying, how do we then know to, to, from, a, from a rational perspective and build in those habits? Um, going back to our very first behavioral groove session uh, meetup that we talked about habits and building routines and building different mm-hmm. things. And so if there isn't noise, do we have to then create our own noise through building habits of, of routines and behaviors in order to It could to be environmental. Sure that... It could be our own choice. There's yep. a variety of different stimulants to that. 
Um, speaking of change, uh, I, I liked how uh, offline you and I were talking about this, these models of change. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really interesting because uh, Chad kind of teed them up and uh, Prochesca. But uh, a question that came to my mind was Chad seemed to be focused primarily on just talking about changes where people are initiating it themselves. Yes. Where they're saying where, where the noise has gotten great enough, but there's other kinds of change. Yeah. And we talked about this, right? The fact of there is there is change, or as I like to call it, it's the shit that happens to us um, that require us to change, uh, such as a divorce, uh, a death, a job loss. Those are significant changes. A car accident. A car accident. Right. You get injured. Right. Uh, all of those factors. And, and we cope. And we change. And yeah. we have to. It's just, it's that. Then there's the, the larger societal changes or the shit that happens to all of us. Uh, technology advances, the cultural shift that we're having. Taxes. Taxes, uh, various the different air things. We breathe. It, yeah. Just think about the reaction that we are going through in America right now with uh, culture and, and immigration and the way that the people around us aren't necessarily the same people that were around us 10, 15, 20 years ago. And how that causes angst and change uh, and the change that's required around that. Yeah, there's the in-group, out-group kind of thing. They're not like me. Uh, and it's easy to focus on differences. Yeah. Uh, right. And so those changes happen. And, and, you know, the big thing that we can always talk about there is just, you know, 15 years ago, I didn't own a smartphone. Nobody owned a smartphone. And the change that that has done uh, to our society and to our everyday behaviors is significant. Right. I have... Google at my fingertips and I can ask any question pretty much any time of the day or night and get a response. Um, That we didn't have uh, in those things. So I heard uh, Tom Hanks recently say that he has taken all of the apps off of his phone that have a sense of immediacy about them. You know, the, um, the, the news, the headlines, the, um, the, the Facebook, the Twitter kinds of things that are, you know, this constant spin of new, uh, new content. Uh, and, he, and, and he said he did it because they're all like 10 seconds of consumption. He said there's no real depth. We get a headline. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and, and, but our brain starts to get impacted by all these headlines. And we either are playing to confirmation bias because, oh, this headline reinforces what I already like, or it doesn't reinforce what I like, and I'm dismissing it. And uh, as opposed to actually getting into an article and getting into an exchange, and, and one of the thoughts that came to my mind after he said this is that it, it's leading, it, it's supporting this idea of easily polarizing the world. Yeah. That it, be, it becomes a headline society and not an in-depth discussion society. I always like Tom Hanks. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, 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 seriously that is a wonderful idea, and I wonder. I, as you were talking about it, I started thinking, well, wow, wouldn't that be great? I should do that for myself. But and I don't I'm, know if I can. It's exactly where I went. I'm going. I'm not sure if I'm okay with doing that. There is that dopamine release that you yeah. get when you, when, yeah, it might be confirmation bias, but damn it, wow, that headline really made me feel good, you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we won't go into the, the, the headlines that make me feel good, but I, I think there's some interesting pieces with that. So, should we talk music? What, talking music? What do we want to talk about? What are you listening to these days? Uh, so, I am listening to, uh, 
a variety of different things. Um, I think the the most recent one that I'm going back to is Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, on my Pandora mix. Uh, it has one that I'm going back to as my Red Hot Chili's. Really? Uh, yep. I, they're one of my favorite bands. I, I love the the variety that they have in their sound. And so, you know, a little bit of funk, a little bit of soul, a little bit of yeah. really just hard rock going in there. So, were, Just out of curiosity, were, were they popular when you were like later high school years? Or no, no. Years? I didn't Was hear about them until probably... Uh, later part of college grad school. So really, I remember uh, uh, a shout out to to one of my old grad school um, uh, friends, Leslie. We had a bet, uh, and she had to had to get me um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers album that had "Suck My Kiss" on it. That's all I remember. <laughs> I just, and I love that song, "Suck My Kiss." And what a great, what a great song title <laughs> well, it's, it, it, it's one of the song titles that um, would it counts among some of my favorite song titles <laughs> which, which would also include one of my favorite country song titles which is how can I miss you when you won't even leave me <laughs> alright so changing uh, throwing it back to you so I've, I've been listening to um, a band out of uh, Erie uh, Pennsylvania called Lord Huron and uh, they're just wonderful. They have sort of a, a rockabilly Americana roots mm-hmm. kind of a, a focus. And uh, they, they really prize um, interesting arrangements. And, um, and, and I saw them uh, live about a year ago, and they had a stand-up drummer, uh, which is just kind of interesting. And they, they were completely comfortable with the idea of playing with a track that was... Um, that had a lot of percussion stuff going on and uh, background sounds yeah. to kind of lay this foundation of thickness over the of this the single guitar, um, bass and um, and and drums. Stand up drummers, my two favorite stand up drummer bands, Violent Femmes, yeah, uh, which I saw had basically a snare drum and a cymbal and that was it. Yeah, and then Trip Shakespeare. Uh, local Minneapolis yeah. band yeah. Uh, that you know Dan Wilson came out of Semisonic and all of those, but yeah. uh, they used Matt to have Wilson the, headed yeah, it up. Matt Wilson, uh, but they had the stand-up. Uh, I can't remember her name, who was the drummer, but you talked about all the percussion stuff. One of my favorites seeing them live was the Pants, and then they would go into a little, little. All four of them would be on the drumming. drum and doing it, and it was just a phenomenal live show yeah. uh, when they did that. Three so. Cats did that a bunch too. Okay. Stand-up drumming, which yeah. was which was pretty fun on my mind because I'm. Fantasizing right now about a Brian Setzer guitar. There you that's, go. Uh, that's all for that. And with that, I think we should wrap this session up. That sounds uh, great. But this was uh, the Behavioral Grooves podcast, and uh, we hope you enjoyed and hope you listen in to, to our next one. Subscribe uh, through any of your favorite subscription methods, either iTunes or uh, Podbean, are uh, our favorite too. And so we'd like to just recommend that you go out and uh, hit the subscribe button and catch the, catch the next one in the series. All right. Thank you, and have a great day.